Welcome to the Cancer Con Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program update on the treatment of acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML. And today's program is um, being conducted in collaboration or in partnership with the Leukemia Research Foundation and Cancer Care, and we're delighted to be partnering with them on this program today. Um, and it's a wonderful partnership, and we plan to continue that for all of our programs that are leukemia-focused. And our, um, I, I just want to say that we... Um, are delighted to have so many speakers today on the call today and so many participants as well. Um, today's program is supported um, by Aegis, um, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and a grant from Genentech. And we really want to thank them for their support of today's program, as well as their support of a number of our programs, uh, of these particular programs, and of Cancer Care. Um, we have on the program today over 200 participants, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants today on the call from Canada, France, India, Iraq, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I am going to ask you a few questions, and the reason for that is we'd like to get a sense of what you know um, before the program starts, and it, it helps us as we plan future programs um, to get a better sense of, of who, what you each know. So for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to participate in these questions. So I'm going to start with the first question, and the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current treatment options for acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand transplantation as a treatment option for acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new and emerging treatments for acute myelogenous leukemia or AML. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand how to manage the symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of acute myelogenous leukemia in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand how clinical trials increase the treatment options for acute myelogenous leukemia. 
Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us a lot, um, and uh, we'll be able to plan better programs to meet your needs. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Farhad Ravandi. And Dr. Ravandi is the Janice and Stephen A. Lasher Professor of Medicine, Chief Section of Department Departmental Therapeutics, Department of Leukemia, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ravandi will be addressing an overview of acute myelogenous leukemia in the context of COVID-19, current treatment options, transplantation as a treatment option for AML, new and emerging therapies, talking with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ravandi. Hello and um, good afternoon, and uh, thank you, Dr. Messner and uh, Cancer Care and uh, Leukemia Research Foundation for organizing this, and uh, thank you, everyone who is participating. So um, uh, I'm sure uh, all of you wish that you had not had to participate in this uh, uh, meeting because, of course, having uh, or having uh, having the disease acute myeloid leukemia or having a relative with a disease is not uh, uh, something that anybody uh, wishes to uh, encounter. But uh, I think uh, the thing that I can emphasize is that uh, we now are continuing to have better and better options for patients with AML. Uh, the disease AML, as uh, you know uh, from the wording, is an acute form of leukemia and, uh, of course, that means that uh, even in the context of uh, COVID-19 and pandemic, uh, the treatment in general is uh, something that cannot be deferred until later. Um, the way I like to uh, tell my patients in clinic about what AML is, is that uh, uh, we all have um, uh, uh, in our bone marrows these uh, stem cells that normally uh, replenish the prefer blood with uh, uh, healthy uh, white cells, uh, red cells, and platelets, which we need for fighting infections and bleeding, as well as for um, uh, 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 having uh, adequate oxygenation and not becoming fatigued and short of breath or not anemic. And uh, when these uh, stem cells, for reasons that we now better understand, and that involves abnormalities or changes in their genes and chromosomes, uh, they uh, become uh, abnormal and essentially transform to leukemic cells. And typically, these cells have an advantage in terms of having a survival advantage, and they try to essentially take over the bone marrow. Unfortunately, this leads to the manifestations of AML, which are anemia, low counts, low platelet counts, and bleeding. Uh, as I mentioned, in the context of COVID-19 pandemic, uh, uh, I still uh, think that the patients should be uh, seen and managed and treated uh, essentially immediately. Um, uh, there are obviously different forms of AML, and some are what we call a lot more proliferative, where the blood counts increase rapidly, and they are extremely acute, and uh, they need to be uh, immediately or very soon started on some form of therapy. 
And there are t- types of AML that are a little bit more indolent. And I would say to you that there are, there's no uh, absolute indolent AML, but there are some particularly older patients who ca- whose counts are low. And uh, when they do the bone marrow, they have uh, 20%, 25% blast. And these patients, we can take a little bit more time to start therapy. Uh, but in general, I always advise patients to, once they realize that counts are abnormal, especially in the pandemic era, they need to start taking precautions about infections. They need to be very aware of their bleeding risk. Um, Etc. And they obviously need to see their position immediately. Um, so uh, the treatment of the AML um, has uh, been uh, uh, evolving over the last uh, 15, 20 years, particularly uh, prior uh, to the introduction of new agents. Uh, the sole basis of therapy in AML was uh, using uh, what we call chemotherapy agents. These are agents that uh, really focus on dividing cells. And as I mentioned, AML cells tend to be dividing. And when you give chemotherapy, these cells uh, tend to be more susceptible to the uh, killing effect of the chemotherapy. But unfortunately, as you all heard and as you all uh, know, uh, chemotherapy has, uh, does not only act on uh, just the leukemia cells, but also on normal cells. And because of that, you get the side effects of chemotherapy, which are particularly uh, significant lowering of the blood counts with the attendant uh, potential risks and complications, as well as uh, other uh, effects on various organs of the body that could be any organ, including uh, a heart, lung, liver, kidneys, etc. Uh, typically, this is not uh, uh, a sort of a... a uh, side effect that is, cannot be managed in majority of patients. But of course, that means that the patients typically have to be in hospital and closely monitored, uh, particularly for the first cycle of treatment, which is the induction. Now, uh, once you give uh, any treatment and chemotherapy particularly, uh, we hope that the patients go to a state of complete remission, which means that their bone marrow becomes uh, uh, normal and uh, their um, uh, blood counts become normal, and uh, unfortunately, that's not directly equitable to uh, cure. Uh, and uh, um, uh, that means that uh, there is still, when you are in remission, unfortunately, there are still uh, some leukemia cells uh, in your body. And uh, this is well known over the last 50 years that you need some what we call post-remission therapy. Now, the post-remission therapy in the past uh, was um, uh, typically uh, more cycles of chemotherapy, and still is in many cases. Uh, And uh, also there are some subsets of leukemia which we consider as being more difficult uh, and more resistant to chemotherapy. And in those subsets, uh, the uh, post-remission therapy is in the form of a, a bone marrow or a stem cell transplant. Uh, of course, that uh, is a, a more um, heavily involved uh, treatment uh, that requires uh, either intensive chemotherapy and some occasions radiation, as well as uh, having a donor that uh, will uh, provide the stem cells to replenish your bone marrow after the chemotherapy and radiation um, that, that was performed for the transplant. 
And as, as I mentioned, all of this uh, is quite intensive uh, uh, treatment that uh, particularly in the pandemic era, but even before that, uh, predisposes patients to high risks of infections, uh, viruses and uh, bacteria and fungal infections. And uh, so this is something that uh, uh, still is an issue and especially now, uh, uh, we really tell our patients to have extreme uh, uh, precaution regarding infections. And, of course, another issue is uh, bleeding uh, problems uh, that uh, we essentially the patients require transfusion of blood and uh, platelet products uh, con constantly, almost on a daily basis, uh, uh, to uh, try to maintain the counts. Um, now, uh, of course, uh, uh, the good news is that um, up till about uh, uh, several years ago, there had not been any new recent drug approvals in AML. And uh, over the last few years, there have been a, a whole host of new agents and highly effective agents that have been developed in disease. So uh, it actually makes the uh, treatment of ALL a little bit more complicated because, uh, uh, you know, in the past, uh, you just... Uh, have to think about uh, two or three drugs, uh, chemotherapy drugs, and all patients would get variations of that. Uh, whereas now, uh, we now understand a lot more about the uh, biology of AML and why AML develops. I mentioned to you genes and chromosomes earlier. And once we know this uh, better, we have been able to develop a lot more targeted agents, agents that uh, go after the abnormal biology. And because of that, it is actually a lot more important to have this data before us before we start therapy in most patients. Uh, so when you do your bone marrow exam for diagnosis, uh, initially uh, we send it for these gene and uh, chromosome uh, analysis that helps us these days, at least in a significant proportion of patients, to design treatments that are more likely to be effective and more uh, 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 really more potent in terms of their effectiveness and probably less toxic in terms of their toxicity. In fact, in the older population of uh, patients with AML, which is unfortunately the majority of patients, this is a disease that more that is more common in the older population. Uh, in the older population, we now have uh, a combination of uh, a couple of drugs that have been recently or fairly recently FDAB approved uh, one uh, important one is an agent called Benetuclax, which has been, uh, in my opinion, uh, transformational uh, for uh, treating this disease. And when you combine that uh, with uh, other agents like desidabine uh, uh, or azacidabine or even uh, low-dose cytarabine, uh, we are getting much, much higher response rates that we used to get and much, much less toxicity that we used to get. And this has led to a significant improvement in the survival of patients. So essentially it's transformed the treatment of this disease in older patients from a highly uh, toxic and unpleasant situation to a, uh, I'm not going to tell you uh, that it has changed it to a pleasant situation, but it has made it much more manageable and much less toxic. And uh, uh, so um, the quality of life uh, has definitely improved, particularly in the older, unfit um, patients who couldn't receive the chemotherapy. 
And um, in regards to um, uh, 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 specific treatment agents, I think Dr. Stein after me will go over many of them, uh, but uh, uh, some of them are even oral agents. Uh, as I mentioned, these are oral targeted agents that are essentially very non-toxic. And uh, it is very important for you to discuss these with your physicians and make sure that you get under the appropriate regimen. And because of this, I actually highly recommend, I personally think all AML patients should be treated in uh, centers that see a lot of AML and uh, have a lot of expertise, uh, especially these days that we have all these options. With regards to telemedicine, Unfortunately, this is still not a disease that uh, can uh, be really effectively managed uh, in a telemedicine situation. I, uh, of course, uh, once the patient has been in remission and has finished therapy, maybe, maybe uh, telemedicine would be more uh, uh, possible, but uh, the initial process requires really uh, your attendance or a patient's attendance in um, uh, uh, the clinic and uh, initially in the hospital uh, to uh, have uh, uh, the best possible outcome. Uh, this is a disease that uh, is best cured the first time. So I would recommend to you all uh, to have the best treatment option in the first uh, attempt because uh, a relapse disease is still uh, uh, not ideal. The situation has improved significantly but still the best time to cure AML is the first time. Um, I think with that, I am going to finish, and um, I think Dr. Stein will be going over a lot more. And I have to apologize that I have to uh, leave the and not be uh, here for the question and answer segment of the um, uh, talk because I have to uh, attend the meeting that I cannot uh, not attend. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Vandi, and thank you for being on this portion of the call and, and providing such really enormously helpful information to our participants. So we really thank you for this outstanding presentation, um, and um, and thank you. And our next uh, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Aiton Stein, and Dr. Stein is a hematologic oncologist, clinical trialist acute myeloid leukemia, leukemia service from Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Stein is going to address the role of clinical trials in the context of COVID-19, how clinical trials increase treatment options, side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain management tips in the context of COVID-19, important questions to ask your, when communicating with your healthcare team, Guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of prepared questions and open notes, and quality of life concerns and follow-up care. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stein. Thank you so much um, for that introduction, and thanks so much for having me um, on this call. I'm really delighted to talk to everyone who's listening. Um, so I've been tasked with talking a little bit about clinical trials for acute myeloid leukemia um, and the importance of clinical trials for acute myeloid leukemia. And I want to address that in, in two separate ways. I think that clinical trials for acute myeloid leukemia are important on a societal level, number one. So the only way that we're able to make progress, and we've been able to get um, all of these drugs approved over the past uh, five years, 
is that patients have been eager to participate on various clinical trials for AML. And it's the participation in those clinical trials that allows us to show that certain therapies are better than the standard of care, and then those therapies can be approved by the FDA and can come and help patients. But then on the individual level, when we're talking about the individual patient, I can't stress enough how important clinical trials are because what they do is they give individual patients access to novel new drugs that the best minds in the field think really might help improve the overall outcome of patients with acute myeloid leukemia. Now, I'm not saying we're always right. Unfortunately, we're not always right. But in a lot of cases, we are right, and these drugs really do um, improve the outcomes of patients, um, and it's very helpful to them. I think one question that, that comes up often when I bring up clinical trials um, with my patients is people worry about getting a placebo. People worry that, um, that when we talk about clinical trials, that what will happen is that there's going to be a group of patients who doesn't get any active treatment for their AML. I want to dispel that myth. That is not true. There is no clinical trial that I am aware of where the comparator arm, that is, that there is a group of patients who doesn't get any therapy. All of the clinical trials that, are, um, that are, I'm familiar with and that are in the clinic right now are either clinical trials where you know exactly what you're getting because you're getting some new novel agent, or it's a clinical trial where we're comparing a novel agent with the standard of care to the standard of care itself because we don't know which one might be better. Um, some of the clinical trials that have led to drug approvals, like Dr. Ravanti was saying, are clinical trials with, with agents that are oral, that can be taken at home, and that don't require the kind of intensive hospitalization that many people have um, experienced in the past for their acute myeloid leukemia. Now, what happened with clinical trials and what happens with clinical trials in the age of COVID? So in, in um, somewhat of a strange way, COVID has been good for clinical trials. And let me tell you exactly what I mean. So it used to be that if you wanted to participate in a clinical trial, you had to actually go and be present um, all the time or multiple times during the month at a particular study center that was performing that clinical trial. So, so in my case, I work in New York City. So if you wanted to be part of a clinical trial um, that's part of what I direct called the Program for Drug Development in Leukemia, our phase one clinical trial program at Memorial Sloan Kettering, you would need to come and see me in person. And then for all of your subsequent clinical trial visits, you would need to um, show up in person to be examined. With COVID-19, it became clear that if clinical trials were going to continue for AML, we weren't going to be able to um, require patients to be coming into the hospital or into the clinic as frequently. And what that allowed us to do is to have patients get at least some of their care and do some of their visits closer to home. There is now an effort, I think, amongst um, many groups, both the on the federal government level and private foundations, which are really looking for ways to increase the um, ability of patients to enroll and participate in clinical trials 
with um, digital methods, with telehealth methods. Because, you know, if you don't live near Memorial Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson, which are great, huge, big cancer centers, and you're living out in a, a more suburban or rural area where you might not have access to clinical trials, this is a way that potentially you can get some access to studies that you might not have had access to before. Okay, I want to shift for a second and talk about how we manage side effects for patients who have acute myeloid leukemia. As Dr. Ravandi mentioned, I, I think the side effects of having the actual disease fall into one big category, and those are the side effects associated with low blood counts. Um, and you know that those low blood counts can be uh, low red cell counts. You can become, or people can become anemic. People can have low platelet counts, or people can have an impaired or low immune system. So the, the two of these that really, I think, cause um, the most symptoms are being anemic and having a low immune system. So in terms of the anemia, what I would recommend is that you discuss with your physician having an action plan so that you are proactively having your blood counts checked to be sure that if you are anemic, you are getting the transfusions that you need before you become symptomatic. So what you don't want to happen is that you're not getting blood counts checked very frequently, and then you become very anemic, and that causes fatigue and shortness of breath and overall feeling very weak, and it's only afterwards that you get the blood transfusion. You want to have your blood checked relatively frequently at the timing that your physician determines and be sure you make those appointments so that if you are dropping below a certain predefined threshold, usually seven or eight for a hemoglobin, depending on where you are, that you're getting that transfusion at that time. In terms of the um, infections that people can experience, you know, in most centers, if people have low immune systems, um, your doctor will put you on prophylactic antibiotics. It's really very important to take these prophylactic antibiotics. Um, and the reason is because probably the best way to help prevent the infections that cause symptoms are by taking these drugs. There are a wide variety of prophylactic antibiotics. Not every antibiotic um, agrees with everybody's stomach. So, you know, if you are put on one prophylactic antibiotic and, you know, you're having side effects like nausea or um, gastrointestinal upset or diarrhea, you know, you should go back to your doctor and say, hey, listen, this isn't working for me. Is there an alternative agent um, that I can take and that I can be put on? One of the side effects of a lot of our therapies um, is nausea. Um, those side effects can be whether a patient is getting intravenous chemotherapy and even if they're getting some of these newer oral drugs that we're very excited about, nausea is something, unfortunately, that happens with a lot of medicines, not just oncology medicines, but a lot of medicines in general, and, and it can be variable from patient to patient. So again, one of the, the major advances in, in the supportive care of patients with cancer over the past you know, 20 years has been that we have a wide variety of various anti-nausea drugs um, that work extremely well. And if one of them isn't working for you, your doctor will almost certainly be able to find another class of agents or a combination of drugs that may help um, provide relief from any nausea that you might be experiencing. Okay, I wanna make a couple of other comments, and this gets back to the telemedicine issue. So I agree with Dr. Ravandi that for this disease, because people need blood transfusions, um, because they need to get their blood counts checked, 
um, very frequently. You know, it's not realistic to think that, that you'll be able to stay at home and do all of this from home. You'll certainly have to come in and get blood work done. But I do do, um, I do um, uh, many more telemedicine visits for patients who might be getting their blood counts checked with a local provider, and then they want my expertise when it comes to sort of the bigger picture items, like what treatment should I get or how's the treatment going or something like that. And in that case, telemedicine is a really, really good way of communicating with your doctor. In fact, what it's allowed us to do as physicians is it's allowed us to give second opinions to many patients across state lines. So, you know, it used to be that before COVID, I was only allowed to give to practice medicine in the state of New York and New Jersey, where I'm licensed. But with COVID, there were emergency regulations that were put into place where many states allowed us to um, basically get an emergency license for all of those states so pa patients could seek second opinions um, at a place like Memorial Sloan Kettering or like MD Anderson via telemedicine. For those of you who are using telemedicine, let me give you um, a couple of hints. So, you, you know, whatever telemedicine platform you're using, it's really important to be sure it works and you know how to use it before you're ready to show up to the appointment. Um, um, you know, it happens on, on our end also that the technology doesn't always work. I actually am always checking to make sure the technology works the day before my clinic. I have my clinic on Mondays and Thursdays, and that's because um, – you know, you have a limited amount of time with the doctor. You know, the visits might only be 20 or 30 minutes. Um, and if you're spending a lot of time trying to figure out, well, how do I get my volume to work and, and how do I get my microphone to work, um, then, you, you know, you sort of wasted a lot of time. So being sure the tech works is very important. And often there will be um, like an administrative person or a, um, a secretary or someone like that who can help out with the tech before the appointment. When you come to that telemedicine appointment, um, it's important also to have other people on the call. So um, a lot of the telemedicine platforms now allow not only for the person who is the patient to be there and anyone that might be in the physical location where the patient is located, but it actually also allows for family members or anyone else the patient want to might want to join to join from other locations remotely. So, you know, the patients, I had a patient I saw yesterday where um, – where I saw the patient, she was sitting in her house, and then her two daughters were on the phone. Uh, both of them were in different cities, um, and, it, and it worked perfectly. It was actually a very, very promising and a very good conversation. Um, and finally, when it comes to what should you talk about with your doctor, what are important questions to ask when you're diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia and when um, treatment is being talked about? So let me tell you a few things that I think are important. The first question is, what are the options? Sometimes doctors will say, you should do this or you should do that, or I recommend this or I recommend that. So it's always important to ask, are there any other options? And if there are any other options, why don't you think that option would be the best option for me? And then let your doctor explain why that might be. Be sure you have a very good understanding of the risks and the benefits of each option. Um, Sometimes as physicians, um, you know, we do this so often that we talk about the different options. We sometimes forget to talk about the things um, that might be important to you. So just be sure if you're worried about nausea, you're worried about vomiting, you're worried about diarrhea, be sure to ask um, your doctor and say, will there be any nausea? Don't assume that your doctor is, um, 
will will list every single thing, especially things that you might be worried about, you should bring that up. And finally, one question that I find my patients ask that, that is actually jogs my, my thinking and is a good question is often at the end of the conversation, they'll say, are there any questions that other patients asked you that I haven't asked that you think would be important for me to know? And that often gets me thinking. And I think about the other patients I saw that day, the other patients I may have seen the week before, the week before that. Um, and it gives me an opportunity to really reflect on anything I might have forgotten um, to tell the patient about. Finally, at least in our practice, we have not only doctors who tell patients about the treatment and the side effects of treatment, but we have um, nursing staff and pharmacy staff that do the same thing. So whenever I'm starting a new treatment with a patient, you know, you, you come into the doctor's office, you're being told you have a serious disease, and then um, someone starts telling you about treatment, it can be very overwhelming. And I think it's important to hear um, treatment recommendations a second time. So I usually, and I would encourage you to ask your doctor to do this, ask if there is another person who might be able to give you a call a day later or two days later to answer any follow-up questions you might have before you end up starting. And with that, I thank you very much uh, for your time and your listening, and I'm going to um, pass it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stein. That was superb, really. Just a wonderful presentation and wonderful um, information for everybody. And I know there'll be uh, questions for you during the Q&A, but just uh, it's packed full of information. So thank you. Thanks so much. And our next speaker is um, is Ms. Korea, Ms. Carrie uh, Palace, and she is a director of programs for the Leukemia Research Foundation, and and they are partnering with us on this program, and will partner with us on on future leukemia programs as well. We're delighted to have Miss um, Callis on board, and um, and she will be addressing the Leukemia Research Foundation's free programs and services, and um, and provide you with their contact information. And I should tell you that whatever we provide here, any websites or any information we give you, we'll also provide it to you. At the end of the program, we'll get a Survey Monkey, and in that Survey Monkey, there will also be all the any links that we provided during the program, and then others as well that would be resources for you to have after the program. So now it's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Callis. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for that introduction, and I'd like to thank Cancer Care for hosting this important program. The Leukemia Research Foundation has collaborated with Cancer Care many times over the years, and we're honored to partner with them as they do incredible work to support cancer patients and families. So today I would like to provide you with a brief overview about the foundation's programs and services that benefit patients, caregivers, and families. The Leukemia Research Foundation's mission is to conquer all blood cancers, and we do this by funding innovative research to find new treatments and cures. The foundation has raised over $85 million in support of its mission and has funded research grants to over 600 new investigators worldwide to help them advance their research. Over the past five years, about a quarter of the foundation's research funds have supported AML research projects specifically. 
The foundation was founded by families who have experienced blood cancer firsthand, and many on our board and staff has, have also been touched by a blood cancer. In addition to our research investments, we support patients and families by providing educational programs, both in person when we can safely and virtually, with top hematology oncology experts. These include our annual New and Emerging Treatments Conference in the fall and our town hall meeting, which we hold in the winter. And town hall is an open forum for patients to ask questions of experts. Both of these programs, as well as our virtual program offerings that we provide on a variety of topics, include information on AML specifically. Over the past year, um, we have added peer support programs to our offerings, including an online support community through the Inspire community and a one-on-one -on -one mentoring program for patients and caregivers through a partnership with Emmerman Angels. Ongoing treatments and disease management can certainly take a toll on a family financially, so we offer a need-based patient grant program available to eligible patients in Illinois who are fighting a blood cancer. This past year, about one-fifth of our patients who received a grant had an AML diagnosis. To learn more about our programs, all of which are free, and to register for our peer support programs, I encourage you to visit our website, which is on your screen, um, allbloodcancerswithness.org. And on our website, you can sign up for our mailing list so that you can be informed of our upcoming programs. We actually have a series coming up in July and August that may be of interest to you. You can also find ways to get involved on our website as well. So thank you for this opportunity to share about the Leukemia Research Foundation. And with that, I would like to turn it over to Carolyn Messner from Cancer Care. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and um, uh, Ms. Callis, that was really wonderful. Just a wonderful presentation and a wonderful resource for everybody on the call today. So thank you so much. And I'm sure that people will be contacting you. You're a logical go-to organization for people to access resources and help. So thank you so much. And I'm um, Carolyn Messner. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care, um, uh, uh, just so that you're familiar with this organization. So now Cancer Care is a, uh, is a national organization, and we provide services to people um, nationally throughout the United States um, and um, on all cancers, and also to all people affected by cancer. So it could be the person living with cancer, it could be a caregiver, it could be a young adult, an older adult, um, it could be um, a child who's affected by cancer in the family. So all of our services are available um, at no cost, and, um, and they consist of a number of different things. We do have what we call a hope line, and people often call us. It's an 800 number, and we'll call us and talk to one of our oncology social workers. We are basically a service, an organization that provides our services through our oncology social work staff. We have about 35 oncology social work staff, and so when someone calls our hope line, they'll present their question or concern, and they will get support and help from our oncology social worker. And now we also offer practical um, and um, uh, practical and financial assistance as well as co-payment assistance to people who call us. And this has been an issue. Cancer Care is about 77 years old as an organization, and those services have been provided for all these many years. It's been um, a very important part of what Cancer Care does, our mission to some extent, and, and we recognize that practically people need help with these things. And um, 
and particularly now during COVID, of course, it's been even more so. So there's been a greater need that, than people have ever felt before. Um, we also offer um, case management. So what does that mean? It means that our social workers will, if we don't have the resource, we will take you virtually to a place that has them and be sure that you get connected with them so that you can get the help you need. And if that place doesn't have, we'll find a place that will meet your needs. It could be a place in your own community. It could be a place um, that is in your region or nationally as well. So that's that's another service that we provide. Um, and we also offer online support groups, which are really quite helpful to you because those occur 24 hours a day, um, and they are um, people can post any time of the day or or on, or, or night. Um, they actually can post any time and in their time, different time zones. And our social workers will moderate those groups during business hours, um, and uh, people find those groups very helpful. And we offer these workshops, about 75 of them per year, and we also offer um, publications. So that's a thumbnail sketch of our services. And now, um, um, before we move into the questions, I'm going to just ask um, a Q&A session. I'm going to just ask you all a few more questions um, uh, before we move into the Q&A. So I'm going to start with our first question, and that is, and for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to answer these questions, okay? There's a, you'll be able to fill this out. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the current treatment options for acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I, I feel more confident about my knowledge of transplantation as a treatment option for acute myelogenous leukemia. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of the importance of new and emerging treatments for acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now we just have two questions left, um, and that first one is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with my healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of acute myelogenous leukemia. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for acute myelogenous leukemia. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So now I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. Again, it helps us to better plan programs going forward and to get a better sense of what you know and what you need to know further. So this is why we um, have this, and I really thank you for this. We've been doing this for about a little less than a year, and 
uh, I think has been very helpful um, in, in helping us to better plan programs for each of you. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring our speakers on board, and we're going to go ahead and, uh, and start taking your questions. Michelle will explain to you how to do that. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. For those of you on the web, you may submit a question by clicking on the message, ask a question. And we have a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Um, Stein. What is the difference between myelogenous and myeloid? Uh, good question. They are the same thing. Okay. That's, thank you very much. Okay. Um, and um, another question. So this question, can chemotherapy treatment from, and this is for Dr. Stein, can chemotherapy treatment from peritoneal, I believe it's ovarian cancer, cause AML leukemia? Is that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there is um, an entity called therapy-related acute myeloid leukemia. So what does that mean? That means that, that in rare cases, it's very rare, but in rare cases, uh, chemotherapy or radiation therapy that is given for another disease, and most commonly another cancer, can lead to DNA damage um, in the bone marrow that um, years later can cause um, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, of course, the reason we still give chemotherapy and radiation therapy for those other cancers is because the chances of of developing acute myeloid leukemia um, are very, very, very low. And certainly um, without the treatment for the solid tumor, um, you know, th then it, there would be problems. So, but yes, depending on the chemotherapy or radiation therapy that was received for a prior uh, malignancy, um, there is a small possibility of developing what's called a therapy-related acute myeloid leukemia. And then, um, thank you very much, Dr. Sun. And another question for you was um, then Clexta, the drug that was named earlier. Yeah, so Venclexta is the trade name of uh, the drug called Venetoclax. Um, I use the generic names, but the, the generic name of the drug is Venetoclax, and that's the drug that Dr. Ravandi was talking about, um, which has really revolutionized the treatment of older adults with acute myeloid leukemia when given in combination with um, a medication called azacitidine or a medication called bisitabine. Okay, excellent. And... Um... And then, um, so this is a, um, again, this is the same question that someone had asked before. It's the same, same question. Um, should, for this one, uh, for uh, Dr. Stein, under what conditions should I consider a stem cell transplant? Oh, okay, so, so that's a complicated question um, because it becomes a little bit of an individual decision. Um, and what I mean by that is that every patient is not the same and every patient is a little bit different. But I can tell you the general principles of how we think about 
who should or should not get a stem cell transplant. So in general, when we're thinking about, and here we're talking about newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, when we think about a patient with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, the first step is to get them into remission. And once we do that, the question is always, well, how are you going to keep that patient in remission and cure them? Um, and one of the ways someone can think about doing that is with what's called a stem cell transplant. The way we typically think about it is that patients who are at a high risk of relapsing from their acute myeloid leukemia, we recommend doing a stem cell transplant because in that case, the risk of relapse outweighs the risk of a stem cell transplant. This, the, the, the opposite is true as well. That is, where a patient has a low risk of relapse from their acute myeloid leukemia and the risk of a stem cell transplant um, of having side effects and toxicity from a stem cell transplant is high, we typically recommend not doing a stem cell transplant at, uh, when a patient gets into their first remission. And we usually give um, chemotherapy alone to, to attempt to cure them. Um, so what you're doing when you're thinking about recommending a stem cell transplant is you're really trying to balance out the risk of the transplant and the risk of relapse. And where the risk of relapse outweighs the risk of the transplant, you recommend the transplant. Where the risk of the transplant outweighs the risk of relapse, that's when you don't recommend the transplant. Excellent. Thank you. These are great questions, I must say. These are very, very uh, wonderful questions and a wonderful person addressing them. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sign. Um, and um, so then we have another one. Um, so this is an interesting question for Dr. Stein. What treatment options do patients that are older and not candidates for intensive remission induction therapy have? Yeah, so, so really our, our new standard of care um, is to give patients the combination of a hypomethylating agent. There are two drugs that are approved by the FDA. One is called 5-azacytidine or Videza is the trade name. One is called Dicytidine or Dacogen is the trade name. And to give those drugs in combination with um, with venetoclax, with that BCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax or venclexa that I was just talking about before. That, that is really the new standard of care. And the reason it's the new standard of care is because um, the remission rates with that combination are, are really very, very high. They are probably 40% higher than what they were with our, the other therapies we have um, from two or three years ago. So I think that has become the standard of care. You know, there are, there are other options. So, for example, in a patient who has a specific genetic mutation in a gene called IDH1 or IDH2, um, there's the opportunity to perhaps give a targeted inhibitor of IDH1 or a targeted inhibitor of IDH2 in place of giving venetoclax and a hypomethylating agent. That wouldn't be something that I would recommend for everybody. I usually recommend hypomethylating agent and venetoclax for most people, but there are occasional people that I might give a single agent um, uh, IDH inhibitor to. Uh, I think where the field is going, though, is that, you know, we're talking about now for older adults with AML who are not candidates for intensive chemotherapy. I, I just told you about the, you know, hypomethylating agents with venetoclax. But really, I think where the field is going is going to be adding on even more drugs to that initial, what we call a doublet of the hypomethylating agent in venetoclax and adding other therapies that might be effective in AML onto that doublet so that we're using triplets and even quadruplets. 
And, you know, if you think about other kinds of cancer, specifically a disease like multiple myeloma, um, that's something that's being done routinely, right, where they have very, very effective drugs. And, and a lot of the clinical research that's being done is figuring out what's the best way to give these drugs together so that we increase the cure rate for patients. Excellent. That's really outstanding. And um, the next the next question, which perhaps is similar, but I'm going to read it and um, you'll tell me, what are the benefits of combination of azacitidine and venetoclax? I am also worried about the toxicity of combining them. Um, so the benefits are that it's a great combination. The remission rates in the clinical trial that led to its approval are in the range of 70%. That is that's dramatic. That's dramatically better than what it was when they didn't combine these drugs together where the remission rate was in the range of uh, 30% with azacitidine alone. The, the, um, there are a couple of other important things. So there was data that was just presented three or four days ago at the big, uh, well, at ASCO and then at the big, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting and then the European Hematology Association meeting, showing that there's a subset of patients who get azacitidine and venetoclax who seem to do very, very well for a very, very long time. We're talking years. Um, now, we don't have all the data on this combination because it hasn't been out for that long. So, you know, we don't, we don't know how well it works 10 years from now, but as far out as, as we're looking, for the people who do go into remission, for some big subset of those patients, they're doing extremely well. The toxicity of azacitidine and venetoclax, um, I think there are, there are two toxicities that we talk about. In terms of the biggest toxicity is that at the beginning, it will lower people's blood counts. That happens with every, almost every therapy that we have for acute myeloid leukemia, and it can be managed... Um, by a skilled doctor uh, very well. As long as you're getting your blood counts checked frequently um, and getting the blood transfusions that you need, um, um, you're going to be okay. Some people get a little bit of nausea. That tends to be more with the azacitidine than with the venetoclax. That can also be managed, as I talked about in, in my presentation, with anti-nausea drugs. Um, and and uh, honestly, the, the toxicity of that combination is, is much better than um, what you might expect with um, intensive, I mean, it's definitely better than what you get with intensive chemotherapy. And um, I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, you always have to ask yourself, well, what's the other option, right? So, um, you know, certainly if there was an option that had less toxicity that was equally as effective, you know, you might choose that option, but, but that doesn't exist, right? So if you're faced with a diagnosis of AML where um, your option is this combination, um, which has a little bit of toxicity, but I think it's manageable, um, or um, no treatment, um, the side effects of having untreated AML are certainly worse than the side effects of getting azacitidine and venetoclax. Mm. It's so important to think about that. That's an excellent point. Yes, that's true. And I, I think also people may not realize the enormous advances. I know you've discussed it during your presentation that have been made in the management of treatment side effects. I don't know if you want to comment more about that, but there is the perception um, that is often based on, I guess, when people were much younger perhaps and we didn't have all the uh, medications available to manage treatment side effects or the skill. 
Do you want to comment yeah, on I, that, Dr. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd love to comment on it. I think that a lot of people have this, this vision, or certainly I used to have the vision before I went to medical school, um, that people who get treatment for cancer, you know, they're just violently nauseous and, and vomiting all the time. I mean, that's sort of like what you see on, or what I used to see on television when I was growing up. Um, but it's just not true. I mean, that, that anymore. Um, the, 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 the ability to manage those side effects has maybe been as dramatic and advanced in oncology as all of the new treatments we have that actually attack the cancer itself. Because now we're able to give these treatments and patients have a much, much, much better um, quality of life. Let me tell you about a patient I have. I have a patient who um, unfortunately was diagnosed with an acute leukemia when he was in his 20s. Um, and, um, just, you know, and he, he's an older guy now. And he had, um, you know, a very rough time because that was before we had these good anti-nausea agents. And then um, about 30 years later, he was diagnosed with another cancer. He came to me. Um, worried about the side effects. And, and after he went through treatment for that other cancer, you know, he, he came back and said, you know, I didn't realize just how good the supportive medications were now. And if I had had this back when I was 20 years old and had my acute leukemia, um, I wouldn't have um, been nearly as nervous about undergoing treatment for this other cancer. Hmm. That's an excellent, excellent example and excellent point. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then um, I have a question. Um, I have the COVID vaccine, but are there other precautions I need to take? Uh, so I, I'm going to interpret the question, meaning this is a this is someone who has acute leukemia, who had who got the COVID vaccine, and there's been a lot in the popular press. Like I know I read in the New York Times that. Um, people with cancer or with some other diseases might not develop antibodies when they get the COVID vaccine. One of the things we're offering now at Sloan Kettering, and I, I think you can do this commercially, I, actually I know you can do it commercially, like if you go to CityMD, is you can actually get a blood test to know whether you have de your body has developed antibodies in response to getting the vaccine. Um, that's called, it's very important you know what it's called, it's called the spike antibody test. Spike like a spike that, uh, you know, S-P-I-K-E. And that test tells us and can tell you whether your body has created the antibodies that it needs to fight off COVID. Um, I think it's reasonable to ask your doctor if that's something that you should um, be getting to see whether the vaccine has worked. There is, the, the other thing I will tell you is that there was a small clinical study that was published um, in what's called JAMA Oncology, so the Oncology Journal of the American Medical Association, that suggested that patients who have cancer, that their um, rate of being protected is very, after getting the vaccine, is very similar to patients who don't have cancer. Now, this didn't break it down by the kinds of cancer people had. There are all sorts of issues, but as a group, it seems like the vaccine is working well for patients with cancer. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Stein. This has really been a phenomenal uh, Q&A period, I must say, and you've done a, it was just a wonderful, wonderful questions, and you've just responded to them so 
so wonderfully. And I also want to thank all of you who've asked such really thoughtful and really, um, you know, excellent question. I have to say this, we've done this program a number of times, but these questions are, I think this has probably been one of the best programs we've ever offered on AML. So I, I really want to thank everybody for making that happen. And um, I, I do want to, um, I recognize that there are many more people in queue who have questions. And so I want to comment about that because indeed, um, you know, uh, uh, the issue of questions is always an issue for everybody. So for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, didn't ask it, or who came up with a question during the Q&A, um, this is what I would suggest you do. Um, I, I would suggest that you actually um, take all of your questions back to your treating healthcare team. Remember, they know you the best. Um, they have all the information about you, um, and so that would be a very good group to speak to about this, um, any question that you might have. Now, we also know that you do like to go to resources that um, have um, that are considered reputable, in which all the information is, is current as of like this month to some extent. If you're asking questions that because we're hearing about, there was just this ma these major meetings, and so there's new information out there. So we want you to go to those credible sites. We will provide in the Survey Monkey evaluation that you get other resources that we would recommend that you would consult with. Um, um, we do not suggest that you go on to a blog to get information. We really suggest that you go to a very credible site to get this type of information in addition to your healthcare team. Always remember your healthcare team are your go-to places to, to get information. Um, and um, in addition to that, um, I also uh, would like to acknowledge that we are partnering today with Leukemia Research Foundation, and they're a wonderful resource as well to contact. And of course, for those of you who wish to access services from Cancer Care, please do contact our staff at Cancer Care um, and for all the other services that we offer. Perhaps most importantly, um, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. I want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support. Now, it is normal to feel alone. It's, this past year and a half has been quite challenging, and although there are been tremendous progress over this past year and a half, and particularly recently, nevertheless, people do feel a little bit more alone to some extent, and so that's normal. And to some extent, um, again, there are places you can reach out to. Uh, you can contact one of the, the organizations that we've suggested on the phone or online. And, and that's true for the, our, our international participants as well. You can visit their websites. You can post a question there. They will help you to get resources in your communities as well. You also can um, uh, also uh, join an online support group. There are many different organizations offer them. Cancer Care offers them as well. That could be helpful to you as well, just to not feel you feel like you're connected to other people who are coping with similar issues that you have confronted. And you can participate in more of these programs just because you're going to get information that you can then utilize in your care. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, you've been a tremendously wonderful audience, I have to say. I want to thank you all. And, um, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.